what? We finally got the 2024 Messy Reformation Conference on the schedule. Block off your calendars for April 15th through the 17th, 2024. The theme for our first ever conference is Courageous Leadership, with a particular emphasis on what courageous leadership looks like in times of Reformation. In our current Reformation, the CRC needs leaders who are willing to stand firm in their convictions and lead their churches, classes, and denomination with courage and boldness. We've designed this conference to help equip, encourage, and paint a vision for what that courageous leadership will look like wherever God leads us. To find out more about this conference, or to get signed up right away, head on over to themessyreformation.com. Don't wait to get signed up. We need people to get signed up as soon as possible to get a handle on how many people are coming and what to expect, so don't wait. And don't miss this opportunity to equip yourself connect with fellow leaders, and be part of this messy reformation in the CRCNA. As you know, whenever reformation has happened in the history of the church, things get messy and courageous leaders are needed. That's why we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church, find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We're dropping episodes every single Sunday evening. It's also important for you to know that you are our marketing plan. We rely on you to spread the word about what we're doing at the Messy Reformation. We rely on you to share our content. We also rely on you to give us five-star reviews and provide good feedback for this podcast so that the algorithms push our content further into the world that needs to hear what we're saying. You are the marketing plan, and we believe we've placed our marketing in good hands. You can also support us financially on Patreon or Substack. All the money raised is used to fund online hosting and build the platform of the Messy Reformation. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part one of our conversation with John Sprunk. So, John, why don't you just kick us off? Tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and the church that you're at. Yeah, I'm uh, Jonathan Sprunk. Um, I'm pastor at the First Christian Reformed Church uh, in Oskaloosa, Iowa. I'm senior pastor here. I've been at this position um, six years here in January. Um, I came here. This is my second church call. Uh, My first call after seminary uh, was to Austinville, Iowa, which is a small little town that is not in, when, when CRC folks think of Iowa churches, they either think Northwest Iowa or they think the, the Pella area, which is actually where I'm at now. Uh, but my first call was in Austinville, which is North Central Iowa, the old German Reformed classes uh, is where I served. Um, but yeah, uh, married, my wife Carrie, we have four children, Benjamin, Phineas, Leah, and Nicholas. Two are in high school at Pella Christian High, and two are in junior high at Oskaloosa Christian. Awesome. And so how long have you been in, uh, like, full-time pastoral ministry total? Sure. Uh, I have now been, uh, this will be my 15th year of, of ordained ministry, was ordained in 2009, um, came out of Calvin Seminary uh, with, a, with, with my MDiv in 2009 and candidated uh, that, that year. Yeah. And why don't you tell us about your call to ministry? Was this something you always knew you would do or did it kind of come out of nowhere? So for me, so I grew up in uh, Minnesota in Southwest Minnesota, uh, town of Edgerton. I grew up uh, uh, first CRC Edgerton, grew up a Minn Kota kid, so to speak. 
Um, I have a lot of family that's in kind of the classic Minn Kota churches that are all scattered around Southwest Minnesota. I think I have family in like every single one, uh, but grew up at First Edgerton, uh, grew up in a, in, a, in a very traditional CRC. And First Edgerton, especially in the 90s, was kind of known as a, as a very conservative church uh, that was led at that time by, by Peter Brower, who had been there for a number of years. And then after uh, Pastor Brower retired. It was then led by Tim Brown, who was there also for another like 20 years. Like my my home church went like 50 years with two pastors. And wow. it was kind of wow. known as as yeah, just a rock solid church. And so I grew up, my my family um was involved in agriculture in southwest Minnesota. My dad's a cattle buyer for um for different packing houses. And I have family members who are in farming and uh, crop farming and raising hogs and cattle and sheep. We raised sheep ourselves. And so kind of grew up very agriculturally. And so I went, um, after I graduated high school, went first to Dort for a year and then left Dort. And that's nothing against Dort. It's a very fine institution, but it was not for me at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went to South Dakota State where my the field of study I was going into was animal science. And went an animal science degree and then stayed and got a master's degree specifically in meat science. And so that was my trajectory was I was going to be, I was going to be a meat scientist, um, which whether working for private industry, you know, working for, you know, a meat company like Hormel or something like that, or working for the government, I'd worked some for the USDA or was thinking about going to get a PhD and continuing on maybe in working in university setting. Um, that was kind of the trajectory that I was on at that point in time. But then something else was happening at the same time. Um, when I was getting my master's degree at SDSU, uh, my wife and I had been married. We would just gotten married. She grew up in Southwest Minnesota. Worthington is her hometown. Uh, we had gotten married and then we were living at, at, going to school at SDSU. I was finishing up. And we, you know, we just fresh married, kind of, you know, good CRC kids. We'll check out the local little Christian Reformed Church because that's what mom and dad will want us to. But at that stage, I think in my own life and my own faith life, you know, it was, yeah, I'll do the right thing, but I'm, I'm not super engaged in the, this point. I've made profession of faith, but, you know, we're only going to be here in grad school a year or two. I'm going to go to a church, maybe sit in the back pew you know, go do my, do my one hour that I, I should, and I ought to, I feel like, you know, I need to, and then, you know, that'll be about it. And we, we, the closest Christian reformed church to where we were going to school, it's in Brookings, South Dakota, was a small little um, CRC called Volga CRC. And I'll never forget, we went there, we got married in January and we went on our honeymoon and we came back and we went to this church, you know, and I was kind of hoping, you know, we would just kind of, you know, be anonymous, do our thing. And, and that little church put its hooks in us and never let go of us. Mm. They absolutely, I mean, I mean, and we had no connection there. Nobody knew nobody there. I mean, we were, you know, 22 years old, had been married for like eight days. Mm. And they were like, who are you? Well, you want to, jo- you know, let's do this. And it, what I'll never forget was there was this, this um, couple in their eighties who who immediately latched on to us and like, Hey, you know, you got, you got somewhere to go for lunch after, after church, you know, and of course we're newlyweds. We barely got food in the house. 
You know, we lived in a little apartment. We probably had a, a frozen pizza ready to go. Like, well, we'll probably have, fro- no, you're not going to have frozen pizza. You come and, and, you know, we, we always do a roast every Sunday and, and have, we feed, you know, whoever shows up and they did. I mean, that was what they did every Sunday. Mm-hmm. They pick stragglers <laughs> and invite wow. them in. And yeah. And they actually became some of our best friends in that congregation, you know, and, and that was a church that, yeah, I think, I think we were in, we were signed up for choir within two weeks hmm. and, you know, they had had us, you know, I mean, it just, they would not let go of you. And like I said, that idea that, oh, you know, we'll just kind of anonymously be a part of a church in our twenties and just kind of hang, they just didn't take no for an answer. <laughs> and awesome. so we were part of that church while I was going to grad school and, and kind of getting more and more involved. And I think, you know, um, I was on, you know, I think after a year or two, I think I ended up getting on worship committee. My wife was put on another, I think, fellowship committee at a certain point in time. And we're starting to get more and more involved. And, and it's one of those churches where, yeah, when you're in your, you know, they didn't have a lot of 20-year-olds, you know, but those that they had, you know, we, you know, you know, they wanted to include us and made sure that we were included. And, but it was very multi-generational. Like I said, some of our best friends were in our 80s or or in their in their forties or, I mean, it was, it was that vibe of multi-generational. Yeah. Everybody's got to do something here, um, which was unique. I, I not unique, mm-hmm. but it was certainly eye opening to me. And that was kind of the first time in my life where, you know, you, those critical years where the faith of my parents suddenly becomes, Oh, this is, Oh, this is my faith now. Yeah. And so, but what, what entered into my call of ministry was we had been there a year or two and then had a, had a very nice pastor who was there who then took a call to a, to another congregation, which is, you know, he had been there for five, six years and took a call and then they went vacant. And it was a vacancy that for them lasted four years. Wow. And it became eye-opening to me of the needs of, of kind of rural churches, the need for, for good, faithful, capable ministers and yeah, that there was a real need, you know, and, and some of the conversations that we were having with, you know, you know, folks, you know, in that congregation, uh, some of the, some of the affirmations that they had given me about some of my leadership, not that they were looking at me to be their pastor per se, but um, I'll never forget I, when I, I got a, <laughs> I was 23 years old and I got my nomination to be an elder and that that was a real earth-shaking moment in my life because I, 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 when I got the letter in the mail, assuming oh I've probably got a nomination to be deacon, and it opened up as elder, it was like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> what are they seeing in me that I don't maybe see? Mm-hmm. And some of those discussions that came, and so as at the so finishing grad school, you know, loved an animal and meat sciences, but kind of went okay. We're finishing this, maybe seminary. Maybe I should try this. You know, and and went into it very loosely thinking if this, you know, if I find out, you know, getting an MDiv just isn't for me, I'll walk away and I'll, you know, I'll I'll be a faithful church member and and do ministry, you know, and whatever capability God gives me, you know, but let's, you know, hey, you know, we've been going to grad school already. My wife and I have been married at that point, two, three years. We're kind of used to being poor grad students. You know, if we're going to do seminary, let's try it now. Mm-hmm. You know, and if the door closes or, you know, or if something happens that says, nah, John, you probably shouldn't do that. Okay, well, then we won't. And so far, the door hasn't shut on me yet. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> 20, almost 20 years later. Uh, mm-hmm. It might happen. Who knows? And so, that, yeah, that was a way of, um... but a real heart towards a need for, you know, for, yeah, rural churches. Um, it was eye opening to me to, to learn. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have a variety of churches in our denomination that, yeah, just have a need for good, faithful pastoring. Yeah. And I think, and uh, I should be careful, but I'm not going to be too careful, be, you know, because Tim Keller, you know, ha, had really pushed this city, city-centered church, right? And city planting and, and uh, you know, he's, uh, from a strategic way in some, some senses, I'm going to say, because I kind of disagree with him a little bit, but from a strategic sense, one would think, yeah, this is where people are sent, you know, uh, congregated closely. We can have big impact that overflows outside of that but the detriment of that was that nobody was planting churches in rural areas because it's like oh we just need to go to the city because that's where the people are that's where the resources are whatever and not only not planting churches but then pastors were wanting to go to the cities because that's where the action is that's where the strategy is and so rural churches really really struggled and and I've been actually kind of pushing people a little harder now saying I think the future of the church um, especially as we're getting into more of a post-Christian culture, the future of the church is not big churches. Um, and most of the churches already are pretty small, but I think they'll probably be, get a little bit smaller. And so if we're going to need to plant more churches, but we're going to have to figure out a way to plant churches that can sustain themselves at 50, 60, 70 people. And that's going to be probably rural churches. And so, and we've seen a, a kind of a, I guess I say we've seen, this is all, I have no data, no statistics for this. This is my own personal experience. And I'm living, uh, you know, Beaver Dam's a city of about uh, 16,000 people. And it's uh, 30 miles north of Madison, right? So we're 16,000 people, but we feel like a very rural church because we're pretty rural. And, uh, and over the last three to four years, since COVID, really, uh, we've noticed a ton of people moving out of the city of Madison, um, moving up toward Beaver Dam or moving out of the country. They're still working in the city, but they're getting out of the city now um, for lots of different reasons. And so I've been kind of poking at people saying, maybe the strategy is not the city anymore. Maybe the strategy is somewhere else. And we need to start thinking about that. Well, and especially with the Christian Reformed Church, and that, and I, I resonate, especially with what you said, you know, that was my first decade in ministry. And I appreciated what Keller had to say about, and certainly I, I, get his emphasis on that. But you're right. I think there was something that was lost in those years, a little bit of like, well, yeah, but still the backbone of, I would say, you know, North American Christianity, but certainly the backbone of, of the Christian Reformed Church is still a lot of rural churches, mm-hmm. you know, and the emphasis that I would see, you know, denominationally or, you know, and in those years was, you know, more, and, and I get it for suburban and urban churches. And, and certainly they have their place and they are, are very much needed, but man, I did not see a lot that that said in those years. You know, well, how do you specifically minister in a rural context? You know, mm-hmm. uh, and especially for seminarians, where a large percentage of first call seminarians are going to end up or have the opportunity to end up in South Dakota. You know, in in rural Alberta. You know, or in you know the Yakima Valley or places that yeah has still are on the rhythm of an agricultural year. Or you know, or maybe not agriculturally centered, but still, it's it's that certain type of culture, and I've learned that even more so. I'm now 
I'm now a stated clerk of our classes here in Central Plains, you know, and yeah, I mean, you, you know, there's a, there's a cultural difference at times that it's sometimes hard for guys, you know, just in the same way, it would be, it would be an uphill battle for me to serve maybe in an urban context or I, you know, there would be many things I would really have to learn, you know, but there's certainly same things in a rural context and some of the, some mistakes that I see sometimes guys in making is not interpreting that cultural context well because mm. yeah. it is you know yeah it's totally a cultural context you have to study it and even different rural contexts right i mean we know that right that's one of the reasons why <clears throat> i know i got this advice repeatedly is like get into your church and don't make a change don't even think about changing anything for the first year because you need that you need the. they kept telling me you need the first year to try to figure out the culture of your church and i'm here now five and a half years later in my church going I think I'm starting to figure out the culture of my church. I thought I did after a year, um, but the reality is there's so much, right? Uh, church cultures are so uh, nuanced and dynamic that every year you're like, oh, I didn't realize that's what's going on beneath this, you know? And so I tell people, it's a constant, we need to be constantly studying our congregations. Um, trying to understand who they are and what's going on and what's what fears they have and what mo- things are motivating them, what struggles they're having. It's a it's a constant thing. Yeah, and that's you know the context that I'm in, and even between the two churches that I have served in Iowa, you know, my first one, uh, Austinville, is a town of fifty people. the The church itself is a hundred. You know, but pulls from other neighboring congregations, and but their background was was German Reformed, which has its own little nuances too. You know, um, they were probably more than than my previous experience in more Dutch CRC churches. Um, they were much more ecumenical. Um, they were, you know, they they were used to doing ministry, you know, with with the neighboring churches on a much better level than maybe some more typical CRC churches had been. You know, uh, one of more of their emphasis, I would say, would be more mission minded, um, you know, and that way, you know, where, whereas one of the things they maybe didn't have as much. And that's one of the things that's that's kind of hurt the north central Iowa churches is maybe Christian ed wasn't as big of a deal as it had been. And say, you know, where I grew up in southwest Minnesota or in, you know, in the Pella area where I am now, you know, that wasn't as much of a focus that, you know, the German reform wasn't it wasn't as big of a deal. Um, so there's even those differences, you know, now I'm in a church that I would say is much more kind of traditional Dutch CRC. Oskaloosa is a town of, of like 12,000. Uh, but majority of my congregation is in some way connected to agriculture. Um, we have still have a lot of farm families in this congregation, a lot of multi-generational, you know, you know, kind of typical Iowa crop farming or raising cattle hogs or being connected to to agriculture in some way. And so that that still, you know, dictates kind of the rhythms of the season. Like right now in January, this is when we do a lot of ministry because this is not planting season. It's not harvest season. So this is, you know, this is like right now we have a group in our church that's that's on a work trip down south because this is when they do it. Yeah. You know. Um, we do, this is when we do our emphasis in youth ministry, you know, this is our big cadet and gem season right now and, and doing it because yeah, once, once the calendar turns to April, we shut a lot of things down. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, right? It, it, that's that contextual element of ministry that changes in every area. 
and I could, you know, as a pastor rail against, oh man, we need to be doing this and that, you know, and you know, no, this is, this is the fact of life for this particular congregation. I have to, you know, learn. Okay. Yeah. In October, you know, if I set a meeting for my elders saying, oh, we got to really review the vision ministry, you know, in October, and I'm, I'm going to get nobody because they're busy, man. They're harvesting. This is their life. And I got to realize that. Amen. Well, and I, what I appreciate about that is so many churches feel this pressure that they have to do all of these certain things and in these certain ways and everything and, and recognizing like, obviously there are essential things we need to do, but it has to fit where we're at and the people we're at. And so, yeah, there are going to be seasons where, you know, for my congregation, we're, we're, we're just trying to figure out how to kind of get back on our feet after being struggling for a really, really long time. And that means some of the programs that they've loved for so many years have fallen away and are still falling away a little bit. And I have to keep reminding our church, it's okay. We're in a different season of life here where new things are going to come up. So some programs are going to have to die and that's okay, but, but new things will come. Let's start dreaming about what, what God has for us. And, uh, and so, and it doesn't mean we're a failure just because this one program died. We have other things going on. And so it's a little bit different, but it's similar in a way that we're, we're, we're not adapting to the seasons of the year per se, but adapting to the seasons of just ministry in the life of a church. Yeah. And being able to read your context in your, in your congregation to know, okay, this is what we're good at. This is what we can do now. Okay. This, we can't be everything. Um, you know, there's certain things that we're not going to be able to do, but okay, what can we do? What are our strengths? You know, what, what fits the rhythms of whatever the type of, of church we are and how can we be the best church we are at that? Yeah. So this is going to be a question that's going to seem somewhat completely out of the blue, but I can't, it just won't get out of my mind. And it's probably not out of the mind of our listeners. What exactly does a meat scientist do? Oh, good. You asked. <laughs> okay. So, so my, my background, um, like I said, I grew up in animal agriculture. We raised sheep. My dad's a cattle buyer. He's worked for packing houses. Like uh, he, he currently works. He's, he's a cattle buyer for greater Omaha packing company in greater or in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, so I, <laughs> I, what I, I initially gone to school for animal science thinking, perhaps veterinarian, and then really fell in love with a subset of, of meat science. And, and when I say that people think, well, then you're, you know, is that just like the butcher at my local grocery store? You're getting trained to do that. You, or I had somebody who assumed I went to grad school just for that. So no, not quite. A lot of it is, is, is learning the science behind meat and everything about it, whether it's nutrition or, quality meat eating experience or, and then I, I coached, there are meat judging teams at universities such as South Dakota State University or University of Minnesota or Texas Tech or Texas A&M. And we, we as undergrads compete against these universities in national contests. And so we had at that time, a very good meats judging program at SDSU. And in grad school, I coached the team and we were, we were reserve national champions uh, my final year in 2005. And so that's a bit of what we do. And we evaluate beef carcasses or steaks or roasts or those kind of things and make those calls. And then the other thing about it is, yeah, we, you know, try to teach people how to grill, how to barbecue. And so when I have, you know, sometimes I've had folks, you know, especially early on in my ministry, when I came out of this, 
you know, and then went to seminary and a few folks that said, well, you know, don't you wish you, cause I didn't have a kind of classic liberal, real liberal arts degree. I, you know, hadn't gone to, to finish at Dort and then I had folks, do you regret getting that? And I said, well, no one, if this pastoring thing doesn't work out, I always got a job to fall back on. Um, but you know, I enjoy teaching also, you know, we do meet seminars here at our mm-hmm. church. Uh, I'm very popular when it comes to barbecue season. Um, and yeah, we've been able to incorporate some of that into our ministry here uh, as well. So long story short, if we need to raid somebody's freezer, it's probably yours. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. <laughs> it actually right now. So uh, coming out of the Christmas season, um it, one of the joys of having my my dad work for a meat company is is we just got a, a our Christmas gift was a huge uh, box, ninety pounds of prime USDA prime tri tip, which is now sitting uh, aging in our basement of our church uh, fridge, uh, which will age it for another month and then I'll put it in the freezer. But yeah, it's kind of stuff like that 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 are always we we tend to uh, tend to eat fairly well at times. That's awesome. Well, and it just reminded me actually, so Eugene Peterson, right? He grew up in a butcher shop and cutting meat and he, he applied a lot of that understanding of, you know, he would say, I, I'm a woodworker, so I apply it to my woodworking, but, but he would say, man, there's an art to butchering meat. You have to look at the piece of meat. You have to cut it in a perfect way and you can't, you know, Eugene Peterson, I would say you can't impose yourself upon it. You have to work with the material that God has given you and and he applied that to ministry, right? Just the conversation we've been having. That's why I said it seems like it's out of the blue, but I figured it would tie back in as far as like how some of these skills that we've picked up over the years apply to pastoral ministry, that we come to a church and we say, here's the materials that God has given us. Now, how do we, how do we work with it to turn it into something that's good? Yeah, that's been a big benefit for me in my ministry. The, the meat science stuff you know, has been an entry point for me with some folks that I've been, you know, and, and I, you know, whether it's folks who, you know, contact me out of the blue, you know, about, you know, how do I grill this particular piece of meat that I have, or teach me how to, you know, barbecue a brisket, or like I, I have, I have uh, somebody in my congregation who, who does kind of area educator workshops for our local public schools in this area. And so had me come and speak to some ag teachers, just on meat science, you know, mm-hmm. and I was able to connect with them on this stuff, you know, and, and even just simply relatability, um, you know, in a congregation, you know, uh, and that's not a criticism of, of pastors who, you know, you know, their main hobby is the, you know, deep theological reflection and one is, you know, that's what they love. And that's, and that's wonderful. And I hope all of us as pastors do have theological reflection, but it's also nice to have that kind of Oh yeah, you're just an ordinary dude who occasionally does like to put up, you know, a pork shoulder on the smoker and let it cook, and teach me how to do that too, you know. And so, I've been very blessed here in this congregation. A few years ago, um, had had a group of of men in the congregation who put together a a smoker uh, for me to use uh, for for different grilling events that we have here, a very large one, and so we use that every. At the end of summer, we have kind of an end of summer, beginning of the fall season kickoff, like the last week of August, and we call it parking lot praise. And we we have our evening worship service outdoors in the parking lot. You know, we do some praise music, and then uh, we feed a meal. And we typically do about 250 pounds of brisket. 
that Whoa. I would cook all that Sunday. Um, it's the, it's the one Sunday of the year. I make sure that I pulpit salai that morning or my co-pastor will preach it so that I just sit and babysit the smoker all Sunday. And then we serve and it's, it's open to the community. We let folks know in the congregation, you know, inv- this is your Sunday to invite somebody. We're just going to eat, sing praise songs and have a reflection and say, Hey, this is our ministry year coming up. We'd love to join, you know, have you join us at coffee break or youth group or whatever. Amen. Do you allow people from Wisconsin to come out for that? Because that's oh, yeah. something I would come for. I love. Yeah, I love I, we've had we've had some good classes meetings where they let me not have to do as much clerking, and they let me you know barbecue instead. So we try to do that as a as a bonus. To, you know, if you do actually come to a classes meeting, we'll try to feed you well. Yeah. Amen. Well, and I think you you hit on a point earlier, and, and it and I think it's something really important to to jump into as far as uh, pastors and, and having hobbies. And, uh, and I do think, I mean, of course, on the one hand, like for me too, I, one of my hobbies is reading theological books, right? So I was just made fun of all weekend. I was at a youth retreat and I'm like, I'm going to go read a fun book. And they're like, oh, what are you reading? I'm like, oh, John Calvin's act sermons on the book of Acts. And they're like, that's fun. I'm like, oh, I love it. I find so much joy reading this, right? Like this just brings me great joy. So I'm a nerd in that sense. And yet one of the things I've also, I'm also, my kids make fun of me. I'm, they call me like a serial hobbyist. Like I'm always picking up some kind of a random hobby, whether it's like 3D printing or or painting or drawing. I mean, I'm, I, I do a million different random things. And uh, what I've noticed recently and this is outside like the Christian realm. It's more of like, I, I read a lot of leadership books as well. And in the secular like leadership realm, they're telling people like, you need to have a hobby. It's good for you. It's good for your soul. Um, and it's funny because they're not even Christians, but they're like, it's good for your soul to do something outside of what you normally do for work, just to kind of refresh yourself, to get your mind clear and then they obviously always end up turning it back into like, it actually makes you better because your mind frees up and you think of better ideas and yada, yada, yada. But I just find it interesting where so many people recently are saying it's good to have a hobby and to do that to some degree weekly um, for a little bit of time because it's just good for you. Yeah. And that's been for me pastorally has been, you know, whether yeah, with barbecuing or grilling or something like that has been my kind of pastoral release. You know, oh, it's my day off on, you know, I typically take Fridays off, you know, and hey, this is a day where I could, you know, if I'm going to do, you know, ribs for four hours and smoker, put them in the smoker. You know, I get to sit outside. We have a little patio outside. This is also where I do my theological reading. You know, I have my, one of one of my treasured possessions is I started in seminary reading through um, the four volumes of Bavink, mm. and mm. my 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 reformed dogmatics truly are have a smoke flavor to them because all the awesome. all the days and all the afternoons that I sat out there just kind of reading, you know, uh, you know, in a, in a you know, if I put on something for an hour, okay, I'll get you know fifteen pages done. And just slowly and methodically work through. And, and yeah, there is a smoke tinge to those pages. It was awesome. one of my great joys when I finished reading all four of them. It, it, and my children, uh, my youngest was was just being able to do his ABCs and write his name. And had my four kids sign the back of the book on the day we finished it. You know, they were sitting out playing, you know, in the yard. And, you know, it just 
just remembering, okay, not only am I reading this for theological reflection and the good, you know, good basis of what I need to know as a pastor, but this was recreational to me. This is also my family is involved. My kids are outside. We're enjoying God's creation. And yep, we finished the, you know, this. And so it's one of my, you know, my my favorite, you know, treasured books that I have is that, yeah, it this I remember, you know, reading it while enjoying, yeah, smoke and creation and everything else. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I take Fridays off too. And uh, usually when I'm planning out my week, I'm like, all right, Friday is my, my day off. Um, which hobby am I going to focus on on this day? Like something just that's going to refresh. Well, I don't always get the chance this week. I have to fix my kid's car. Um, so it's not a fun hobby, but uh, I enjoy working on vehicles when I don't have to work on a vehicle, but when you just have to, it just takes the fun out of it, I guess. But well, and then circling back to, you know, making this expertise or hobby into ministry, you know, what I we do about once a year, maybe twice in the summer, we'll do a, a grilling seminar. So we'll pick a Saturday starting at three o'clock in the afternoon I tell folks in the congregation, you know, invite a friend or a neighbor or somebody. And for three hours, we're going to learn the basics of meat science, what makes a good steak. And, and then we put them through like a classic, like what I did in grad school, you know, running a steak test trial, you know, we'll have these eight different steaks that you're going to sample and you're going to rate them on a certain scale from one to eight on tenderness and juiciness and flavor. And we're going to talk about what, why does that steak, why is that one good? Why is that one bad? And how do you prepare it? And we eat a lot of meat. And then at the end we have a barbecue meal together. And especially, you know, bluntly guys of, of our generation or, you know, folks who are, you know, kind of semi unchurched, this is a less threatening way to get them in the door, you know, say, Hey, you know, Hey, you know, we're here in the neighborhood. You know, uh, if we said, Oh, we're going to have a big evangelism service on Sunday morning, which is not, not a bad thing. I'm not, you know, but okay. Well, just come to a grilling seminar. Yeah. You know, yeah, let's just learn how to not. eat together. And with the, you know, uh, further, you know, also, yeah, do go and do likewise, you know, mm-hmm. You know, one of the sad things of our culture is we don't invite people. We're not hospitable. We don't open our homes so easily, you know, and to say, not that you have to do steaks every time, but hey, do some burgers, get some brats, you know, have have somebody over. Yeah, I've said that in our church quite a bit. I've been really encouraging and kind of almost more than nudging our congregation to start doing, um, I remember listening to uh, Kevin Adams he planted, uh, I forget what church it is now, in California. Uh, but he had talked about one of the things that they did that was really helpful in reaching the community. They did like wine and cheese block parties. And so like you would just invite everybody on your block over to your place and you'd drink some good wine and eat some cheese and just talk. That was the point. You just got to meet your neighbors. You got to know them. You built relationships. Conversations happened. Uh, evangelistic opportunities came up. And so I've been telling my church that wouldn't work as good in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, it would be, you know, brat and cheese and, and you know, some people may not like this and probably some beer um, in an appropriate manner. But uh, but have a, invite people over for grill some brats and and just have them over to your house and host them, you know, and, and talk to people on your, on your block or on your street or, you know, if you're out in the country, it's a, a block is pretty large, but there's only, you know, four or five people in there. You invite some people from your neighborhood over and uh, grill and just hang out and talk. And that's really one of, 
uh, one of the best evangelistic strategies I think we're going to have moving forward. I've been studying that recently. It's kind of been my new kick. I've been studying the uh, uh, kind of the missional is the, they didn't use that word, but evangelistic strategies of the early church. Like what were they doing in the first and second centuries to share the gospel? And most of it was just organic relationship type stuff that they were doing. They were just being Christians and inviting people in and talking to them and sharing the gospel with them. And I think for the future of the church, I think that's what we need to get into uh, more and more and more. Yeah. I mean, it's that, it's not a brand new thing. It's not radical necessarily in any way, but yet it is in our culture where we, yeah, we become so isolated from each other. We don't know who's our neighbor, you know, it's hard. And so, yeah, just, Hey, you know, a, a, a non-threatening, just let's have a meal. Let's eat, you know, yeah. um, and just even get to know each other is a good thing. That's all we have for this week. If you want to help us out and support the Messy Reformation, another thing you can do is sign up for our newsletter through Substack. That way, you'll get episodes and summaries sent directly to your email inbox. It will also give us the opportunity to communicate with our audience, which is one of the biggest struggles of a podcast. So head over to the Messy Reformation on Substack and sign up for our newsletter. Now, stay tuned next week for part two of our conversation with John Sprunk. But until then, don't forget this is Christ's church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So, keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.